What's on your mind today? Welcome to episode 353 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Sharon, James, Jennifer, Kristen, Stephen, and Joy. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Sharon, James, Jennifer, Kristen, Stephen, and Joy, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your virtual host today. I realized recently that the pandemic and other things going on in my life had sapped a lot of my energy, and I wasn't even keeping up with all of your emails and voicemails. So what I want to do today is to share your voices, your questions, your experience, strength, and hope with very little commentary from me. If you ask a question, I will try to answer it. I believe I have cleared my email backlog now as of March 21st when I'm recording it. There's always more. And I love your emails. Don't stop. If I didn't read your email or respond to you directly, I apologize. I tried to do my best. I want to start with a little bit of my life in recovery recently. A big major event in my life. A few days ago, we held a memorial service for my father who died on February 10th, 2021. This was a Zoom service because it was better not to gather in person at this time, especially given all of the elderly people with various health issues involved. It also meant that we could bring in friends and family from all over the world to the service who otherwise would not have been there. And it's funny. I knew my father for 65 years from when I was born until this year, until his death. But in people sharing, in family members sharing, in friends sharing, I learned things about him that I hadn't known. Isn't that amazing? I learned that he and his brother and his cousins, when they were young and visiting his cousins, they used to have waffle eating contests. And according to my uncle, one time they tried to make grape ice cream, which apparently caused a very large mess. This is not a side of my father that I saw a lot of. I think having that memory session, that memorial, right? Memorial means we remember. Having that memorial really broke something loose for me because the next day, I had the energy to go back and look at everything you had sent over the past several months. I think it goes back to October, I'm afraid to say. As I spoke in my episode on feeling my feelings, 
I did not try to push down my sadness when it welled up, when I was giving my remembrance of my father. My voice broke a number of times, and that was okay. That was okay. This is what I said. First, I started with the reflection that I had recorded on February 12th that is part of what was posted here for that episode number 351. I'm currently standing in a field outside my parents' house where a few days ago my father died. I'm looking at a snow-covered field with dead grasses and other plants sticking up through it, apparently dead. But I know that underneath the snow, the plants still live. There are seeds that will sprout in the spring. In fact, they are right now, giving life to a flock of wild turkeys. So it is with my father's life. He planted seeds in many other people's lives that continue to grow and flower and flourish. And while his body, his physical being, is gone... He continues to live on in all of us in which he planted those seeds. What seeds did he plant in my life? There really are too many to name, but I will name a few. First, I think, was his example of how to be a loving father. I don't know that he ever said it, but I do know that he loved me. And I hope that I was able to be that same father to my own children. Of course, his love of photography encouraged me into a lifelong love of it myself, starting with the brownie camera I got for my sixth birthday, building a home darkroom right next to my bedroom, and continuing to take thousands of photographs throughout my life. I'm sure that I learned more than I can know from him about photography. He never doubted that I was capable of anything I set my hands to. I learned how to build, how to wire electricity, and so much more that has been invaluable in my adult life. When we needed, my wife and I needed to renovate our 50-year-old kitchen, for example. I used that experience to do everything except installing a new bay window and running the gas line, which continues to be too scary for me to touch. I really couldn't have asked for a better father. I miss him. I'm grateful for how much he gave me. One announcement before we get into your voices. If you wrote me in the past about wanting to be a guest on the show or contribute to a topic, and I haven't responded to you, and you're still interested, please write again. I do have some emails that that I haven't responded to yet, but if you're up for it, I'm up for it, and we can set a date and do it. That will help me to do this podcast. Thank you. If you want to contribute to this podcast, Ask questions, give us feedback, you can call and leave us a voicemail, 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can send a voice memo or an email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions. And if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, please let us know. Our website is therecovery.show, where you can find all the information about the show, including notes for each episode. This one at therecovery.show slash 353. Not too many notes because mostly it's your voices. Also, some links to other recovery podcasts and websites. I want to share a song. This was a song that my father and his friends used to sing around the campfire in the summer. 
My father was a amateur in the sense of he loved it, folk singer, also pretty good at it. Never professional, but in the evenings, particularly in the summer, we would sit around and sing. My father and my mother would play. And this was one of the songs. This was in our memorial. It's called Today. It was performed by the New Christie Minstrels, authored by Randy Sparks. Just a few words from the verse. Today, while the blossoms still cling to the vine, I'll taste your strawberries, I'll drink your sweet wine. A million tomorrows shall all pass away, ere I forget all the joy that is mine today. And that was my father. He definitely experienced the joy that was his each day. Let's get going with your voices here. Sarah left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer and Recovery Show. This is Sarah from Massachusetts, and I am calling after having listened to episode 281, How Do You Trust? I just randomly picked an episode that I had downloaded to listen to tonight while I was taking care of myself and just doing what I needed to do around the house. And turns out it was exactly what I needed. And I really needed a meeting tonight. And I just want to thank you for being here and being my meeting between a meeting. For the first time, I think I'm at a place in my recovery where I really want to go to a meeting every day. And it's really not possible just given the circumstances of my life right now. But I can absolutely call a program friend every day. I can absolutely listen to a podcast every day. I already do my best to not miss any readings for the day. I'm thinking about a lot of topics lately, but it seems to me like trust is at the core of a lot of what I struggle with lately. I really loved the part. I know it came from a Brene Brown talk, but you talked about filling the jar with marbles and that really made a lot of sense to me. I want to get to the end. I don't want to do the middle part of this work. I want to just get to the part where I'm done and I've graduated from Al-Anon, but I know that's not how this program works. There's a particular person that I have a very difficult time trusting. I don't want to be vulnerable in front of this person. And it's not something that I realized until, I don't know, a couple years coming around to this program. And now I, I can see that it's happening and I want to just flip a switch and be able to trust again, but that's not how it works. And part of that is a protective mechanism so that I don't give myself away, which is something I have a tendency to do. I can give myself and all of my uh, vulnerability away and, and I'll give it to like a stranger sometimes. There's some particular kind of closeness and intimacy. There's a thing that I get from that experience of sharing that deepest part of myself, but I can't do it to with, I can't share this kind of vulnerability, this kind of closeness with particular people in my life anymore. And uh, it's not that I, I have hope that I, that can build up again, but it's not 
like the marble jar is just going to get filled. In fact, if I try to like just dump a whole lot of marbles into a jar, it's going to be really loud and it's going to make me uncomfortable. In some cases, those marbles might even break because it's like a whole bunch of glass on glass. In fact, it's much better if you add one marble at a time. I think I really am enjoying this analogy. (laughs) But yeah, I just want to thank you for helping me understand a little bit more about trust tonight. And I also want to just mention that Brene Brown has an awesome new podcast, a new-ish called Unlocking Us, which has a ton of fascinating topics. Check it out if you haven't yet. Okay. Be well. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sarah. Marissa was on a roll with three voicemails about a couple of episodes. Hi, Spencer. This is Marissa in Northern Montana, and I just listened to the episode 335 on isolation and wanted to share some things about that. I really appreciated the spontaneity of your recording the podcast while walking your dog. It was so much fun for me as a dog owner and dog lover to hear the tinkling of the leash and the collar and all that of your pup and um, to hear the outside noises and to know that you are a real person (laughs) with a real life in a real neighborhood. It's easy to put folks on a pedestal who put themselves out there on podcasts and things. It just was really nice to recognize that through this program, podcasts and besides that through this program, we are, it is a program of equals and we all come to the table in the same way. And that was really wonderful to hear. I just wanted to share and acknowledge that I have not had any physical touch with another human being since about August 25th. It's October 9th or something, October 10th. Man, that's been tough. So I was chuckling to myself just earlier this morning that I've always been a lone wolf anyway. I've always been a pretty introverted, isolated type of person. I tend to keep my own company and I like my own company and I've learned to love my own company over the years. And here we are six months into all this pandemic stuff. The community I live in recently went on a two-week lockdown because the cases surged horribly. And it's been a very scary time for all of us. And so even a lone wolf like me, six months into this, I'm feeling a little rough around the edges. (laughs) I'd really like to hug somebody. I would really like to have some physical touch that doesn't involve four paws and a bunch of fur. (laughs) Although I'm telling you, my dogs are my lifeline right now and keeping me sane in so many ways and keeping me grounded in so many ways. And so for that, I'm really grateful. And also it would be great to have some human connection. And so I have been able to get out with climbing friends most weekends, but we don't hug or touch because of the social distancing. Anyways, I just wanted to claim my seat in this program and with the struggles that we are all facing around lockdowns and isolation and enforced isolation, I guess you could say, as opposed to chosen isolation, which is what I had been doing in the past. Yeah, just acknowledging that it it's starting to hit me too, that the veneer of calm, cool, and collected that I've had for most of this pandemic is starting to crack. And that's okay. And so I appreciate that I have a place to share that with and to be heard 
And also to share my story to your listeners, because there may be many others who are experiencing what I'm experiencing and struggling to let it be okay. And the gift that this program has given me and the awareness of listening to your podcast on isolation and recognizing, oh, that's me. That's my story right now too. That gift is that I can come to a place of acceptance around it. I was listening to the Wisdom to Know the Difference podcast, and then I heard my share about the puppies. And it was really awkward to hear my own voice, but I got through it and it was okay. I made it through listening to it. And I thought to myself, oh, yeah, the acceptance is still the deal. That's still the thing that makes everything manageable and makes me still be able to get out of bed and function and do my job and all those other things. And it's not to say that I don't have melancholy days where I just lie in bed or stay in my PJs all day and just check out a little bit because I do have those days. When those moments come, I just let them come. And again, just accept that that's what I need to do for that moment. I guess the acceptance helps me to just be really gentle with myself. Anyways, I guess that's what I needed to share. And thank you for listening. And thanks for that great acknowledgement. You might hear that I've got a dog that wants to go out because other dogs are in the yard. So I'm going to take care of that. So have a fantastic day. Bye. Hi, Spencer. This is Marissa in Montana. And I wanted to respond to episode 336 on irritable and unreasonable. And also just to say that the It's Not Your Fault episode was fantastic and just excellent. And so was this one too. And to just thank you so much for your service. I'm really grateful for all that you do. I heard so many wonderful things on that episode and I just wanted to share a few comments. I had a sponsor in Colorado who added the letter S to the end of HALT. So she said HALT's The S stands for sick. So she said, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and sick. And boy, that resonated with me because when I am feeling sick, it is much easier for me to become irritable and unreasonable. And so when I'm sick now, I have a little more awareness or vigilance around my behavior and around extra self-care so that I don't get to a point of irritability. And then another thing, I had an old roommate years ago who was an AA fellow And he talked about acceptance being the key to everything. If I am feeling irritable and reasonable, or if I am trying to force a solution, then if I do a self-check a la step 10, it's usually that I am not accepting the situation or the circumstances. I remember at the time I was dealing with my mom's end of life. It was a very challenging experience. So I often would mention some of the frustrations or challenges I was experiencing. And he was like, did you accept it? Did you really accept it? Blah, 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 blah. I remember at the time feeling really irritated, <laughs> ironically, that he was talking about acceptance all the time. Now that I look back on it, I can say, I, I call it radical acceptance where I'm accepting things at a deeper layer or level than I ever thought I could. One of the things that prevents me from accepting things is when I have expectations. And so if I am expecting people, places, or things to do things that I want them to do, 
then I struggle with acceptance. That's like a barrier to acceptance. So that is something that I ask myself often. I've come to this when I, through uh, years of various outdoor recreations, I I discovered this and I talked about it with a friend years ago around fear, like when we're actually doing intense activities like rock climbing and how it's mentally or emotionally, there's actually like a fork in the road way up there in my psyche where I can go to the place of fear or the place of irritability or I cannot. But the awareness of that comes like a few clicks up the mental road before I get to the fork. Does that make sense? The other way that I ask myself about things like expectations is if I'm even just being present enough to notice that I am starting like that very first inkling or first nudge of irritability or frustration or anger. Can I even notice just that? Because if I'm present enough and in the moment enough to notice that, then I can make that conscious choice to not go down the fork of the road, the mental road that is anger or irritability, like way ahead of time. And I just go to the other fork, which is serenity, and life is just so much better. So um, the meditation part of our program and the being in the present moment part of our program has been a huge, huge help to me for that. And then my final piece around that is what I was hearing with some of the shares and stuff on that podcast was uh, this idea that avoiding irritability or avoiding anger or frustration is the goal. Maybe that's just how I interpreted the shares. That might not be what people actually said. What I have experienced uh, over the years is that the more, so the acceptance piece comes to me too. So the more I accept my anger and accept my frustration and my irritability, then the less it happens and the less intensely it happens. And like I said, I can become more present on that mental road before the fork comes to even know, am I expecting things? Am I trying to control things? Am I trying to force a solution? All of that so that I don't actually have to get to the fork even at all. Maybe the fork doesn't even happen anymore, uh, the mental fork in the road. Anyways, I hope that kind of makes sense. Another analogy would be like that cooker pot on the stove, the steam, oh, I forget what they're called, but they're like the kind of pots you use to make canned vegetables and stuff. And if you don't let the steam out often, then the pot will explode and it'll break and all the food will go everywhere. When I'm not acknowledging my own anger and frustration, then it becomes bigger. And sometimes I just need to say it out loud. Sometimes I need to text it to a program friend or a trusted friend or um, say it out loud on a voicemail. Somehow by just voicing and just naming my feeling, again, it reduces its power. It reduces its shame. And I'm able to just accept myself for who I am in that moment with all my foibles and faults and um, let that anger and frustration be okay. And what that does for me is it opens up those doors of choice. So now, because it's like the anger or the frustration didn't just get me, I now have choices where I can, how do I express that anger? How do I express that frustration? Is there something I need to say? Do a self-check on my expectations, et cetera, et cetera. And it just um, gives me a chance to pause, like what was mentioned, and breathe and decide how I'm going to respond instead of just react. 
Um, I remember hearing a talk by Father Tom on a recording years ago, and he talked about um, respond, don't react, respond, don't react. And I was like, oh, yeah, how do you even get to respond? And the way that you do that is through being present. Thanks for letting me share. Bye. Hi, Spencer. It's Marissa again. After I emailed those last shares to you, I started to go about my day and I realized, holy heck, that last one on episode 335 might sound really depressing. (laughs) Then I realized, oh, wait, I wanted to say all these other things. But I just wanted to quickly follow up for listeners that, boy, sharing what I shared really helped. Just acknowledging what I feel seems to be the thing that breaks the logjam. I became energized. I was able to pack up and get ready for my shopping trip. I also wanted to acknowledge that recently I have started running and that has been a huge help with all of this. It has helped my mood. It's helped me to sleep better. It's helped some other health concerns that I have. And it's been really great. The endorphins have been great. So I'm really thankful that I've been able to take proactive steps for my self-care during this challenging time. And to that point also, I've made a huge, like redoubled commitment to nighttime self-care, like my nighttime routine. Like last night, I struggled to get to sleep on time, but even so, I still made sure that I brushed my teeth before I went to bed, even though it was really late. Those kinds of small things seem to be really helping me during this time of isolation. And then also just reaching out to you and your community with the podcast, reaching out to my program friends and to my sponsor, those sorts of things also helps me to manage the isolation feelings. The other thing I'm really thankful for is I have a fantastic relationship with my manager at my job and keeping that relationship positive and also honest and real has been a godsend and has been helping me a lot through this time. So It's not all mopiness. And yet somehow acknowledging the mopiness, it's like, shoo, you mean I don't have to be a superhero through all of this? No, Marissa, you can just be human and have your feelings and that can just be totally okay. So I just wanted to add that last piece. Thanks again for letting me share and for all that you do. And I look forward to future sharings from you and from everyone. Take care. Bye. Annie wrote, hi, Spencer. I thought Al-Anon around the world might be an interesting topic for your podcast in these days of meetings on Zoom. As you know, I live in Johannesburg, South Africa, but I regularly attend a meeting in Arlington, Massachusetts, and a friend in that group regularly attends my home group, the St. Francis Forest Town Johannesburg group. The exchange of experience, strength, and hope in our meetings is the same, but the local flavor means that there are some interesting variations. I learned a lot from the Arlington group and have carried some of their structure they are big on structure, into my home group. Al-Anon came to Cape Town, South Africa, in 1955. al began meetings here in 1957. So there is history and richness in Al-Anon's decades here, particularly the shift from the apartheid regime's policy of meetings being separate for whites and people of color in Johannesburg, which is mentioned in Many Voices, One Journey by Lois on page 164. This changed after our first free and fair elections in 1994, though this was long before I joined Al-Anon. Sending you very best wishes, Annie. That's a really interesting idea. And the only way, obviously, I could do that would be to get contributions from you, no matter where you are in the world. If 
you're outside the United States and would like to talk about how meetings in your area, and, and I'm, I know I'm overgeneralizing, I guess I would like to hear from you, no matter where you are in the world, about your experience with meetings that are different from your regular meeting. I guess that's a good way to put it. And particularly if that experience involves meetings in a different part of the world than where you live, whether it's because you traveled there or because you virtually traveled there on Zoom. How is the program the same? And how maybe do the differences enhance your experience of the program? As I said above, you can voicemail, send me a voice memo by email, send me an email yourself, and I will read it. Love to hear from you. Thanks, Annie, for the idea. Nancy writes, I loved episode 345 on slow recovery. I'm a newcomer to Al-Anon and just started listening to your podcasts in April, and it has truly saved my sanity. In a year of COVID and national turmoil with elections, having a son in rehab was a tipping point that really challenged me. My son has been in two rehabs since this May, not to mention three previous rehabs over the last 20 years. I never seriously understood that I needed treatment as much as he did. It never occurred to me that his addiction was also our family addiction, so I never sought treatment for myself, nor was it ever offered. So this episode on slow recovery was very thought-provoking. It has now been 20 years that we have been struggling with this addiction, and it has only been this year that therapy for our family was suggested and even required by the rehab center that he is attending. I'm reminded by listening that we have been 20 years getting to this point, and we shouldn't expect recovery to take place overnight. So much has to be reconsidered and understood and indeed forgiven in order to move forward. It's difficult to recognize our own mistakes and then to put new attitudes into practice. We have to relearn how to relate to our son, a grown man, as a capable individual, instead of our son, an addict who needs his parents to rescue him. Thank you for your guidance. I look forward to every new episode, and I'm willing to work hard towards this reconciliation. Jules wrote with a topic suggestion. I would be interested to know how you and others deal with the insecurity and frustration you may feel when our qualifier is unpredictable and has mood swings. Many know if that person is going to drink, it will be a certain time of day and or with a certain group of people or alone. Not knowing during those hours if the person will be drinking or not is worrying. Hard to plan, hard to know how to react. Thanks for that question, Jules. If you who are listening have experience you'd like to share with Jules, please write or call. Thank you. Krista left us a voicemail about step nine. Hi, everyone. It's Krista from Nevada. I just wanted to share about step nine. One of the questions that you had asked during the program was, what did step nine mean to you or how did it help you? For me, step nine was a huge relief of not only guilt, but shame. I think I just had so much shame over the way that I had acted previously or done certain things. Just working through that step was just really liberating for me to be able to apologize and say that I will try to do better in the future and I will do better today. So again, for me, it was just this huge release of shame that I'd been carrying and that felt really good. I thank you all for what you do 
And I'm very grateful for everyone listening and contributing to the program as well. I hope y'all have a great week. Thank you. Amanda sent in a couple of voicemails late for the gratitude episode. Hi, Spencer and recovery show community. I am feeling a lot of gratitude for the recovery show, Al-Anon, really the whole worldwide fellowship of of recovery, all 12-step meetings. And I just wanted to add my voice into the gratitude Thanksgiving episode, I think probably late. I'm just really, really grateful for the people who do service in meetings. I'm grateful for all the people who have tackled sort of the new online, figuring out how to tech host on Zoom and changing formats and learning virtual ways to have an anonymous fellowship and including some tradition. I'm really grateful to you, Spencer, for all the time it takes to do this podcast. I'm really grateful to so many people who have been contributing and really showing up, doing service and meetings. I've been really liking attending really international meetings that have, even if it's a New York meeting, there's a lead speaker share from somebody from Australia, or it's a California meeting with somebody who's in England who's giving the speaker share, the lead share. And it just feels like a very special time to be all connected. I'm grateful for the silver linings that COVID has given me, including way more time with family, even though it's obviously brought its own challenges. I'm grateful for the new ways that I've been able to do things. And I'm really grateful for my stationary bike that I got during the beginning of lockdown that has truly been a game changer. A lot of the people that I do meetings with always laugh because I'm always on the stationary bike when I'm doing Al-Anon meetings. Even if I'm not doing an intense workout, like just being able to like gently move my body and move a muscle, change a thought while doing recovery or while I'm, I don't know, watching Netflix or something. It's just been a really interesting thing because pre-COVID, I don't think I've ever would have done that. I've been appreciating just taking like gentle walks more around my neighborhood as opposed to only taking walks when I'm and like only appreciating nature when I'm in a beautiful place or I'm at a nature park or going on a hike. But because of COVID, really, I've spent more time really appreciating the trees I can see out my window and getting some house plants and really appreciating and enjoying what they look like just in my house. Yeah, just finding gratitude and noticing where I can be grateful in other smaller spaces in this new reality. So thank you so much for a wonderful yearly reminder of thinking about what we're grateful for, for the reminder that I'm like constantly remembering and forgetting and remembering and forgetting is the the trick to fall asleep or if ever I'm feeling anxious that I can do a gratitude ABC list. So I think about what I'm grateful for. What I've been doing recently is I'll just start by thinking of the thing that I'm really feeling grateful for. In the moment, like I just got this really warm sweater and said, okay, I'm grateful for this warm sweater. And I'll start with S. So I just did an S and now I'll move on to the next letter since I was usually always starting with A (laughs) and never getting down to the bottom letters. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful. It's from this podcast that I've remembered that tool. So 
Thank you so much to everybody. Spencer, Eric, and all the other regular hosts and the future co-hosts. I'm really grateful whenever there's a new voice on the episode. And yeah, just thank you so much. Also, I want to share one thing that I noticed with my gratitude practice that changed is originally my sponsor said, make a gratitude list of five things that you're grateful for every morning. And I used to just write them out like, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for that until I had five. For the last year, I start by writing, today I am grateful. Today I am grateful. I am grateful. I am grateful. I am grateful. And I first write out the prompts five times and I just really feel that and I just repeat. It's like a mantra. I just repeat, I am grateful as I write it. And then I go back to the beginning and I, you know, think I'm grateful and I fill it out. And it's interesting. It's just like a very small, a minor change. And to be honest, I think it started because I was really tired first thing in the morning. And I just started by writing, writing them out before I had to think about them. And it's actually changed because by just feeling general gratitude and like opening up myself to that mantra of I am grateful every morning. It's interesting. It's almost made my gratitudes feel a little bit more open and I don't know, full in some way, as opposed to just naming individual things. And so that's just a small way that my gratitude practice has changed this year. I would like to share that. Thanks again for this space to share. Kim writes, Hi, Spencer. An r and friend of mine connected me to your podcast. I've been picking and choosing topics that resonate with me for a couple of months now. Thank you so much for the topics and conversations. This came to me at the perfect time in my recovery. I'm listening to episode 345, Slow Recovery, this morning. I've been part of an r and forum for three years. When I was new to this, when I first realized that my son, 18 at the time, was addicted to drugs and alcohol, I needed help. I wanted change. I thought if I followed directions and did my work with my sponsor, participated in meetings, and shared my story that I would get better. But I thought it would be faster. Lol. I almost gave up a couple of times when I realized that my recovery was going to be slow, and also when I discovered that my recovery didn't necessarily lead to my son's recovery. I became excited about the process, the practice of my own recovery, when I began to think of it in the same way that I understand my yoga practice. Some things I have learned from my yoga practice include patience, self-compassion, perseverance, struggle, balance, flexibility, presence, breath, self-love, on and on. Each day on my mat is a different experience. My body changes. My mind and my spirit are not stagnant, not the same. I am forever changing. I cannot have expectations for what my yoga practice will be on any given day. It is what it is. I am always where I need to be. It is always enough. I am enough. Feelings, emotions are not good or bad. They just are. Acknowledge them. Feel them. What can I learn from them? Then let go. Some of my favorite sayings from my Naranan group include, Practice, not perfection. One day, sometimes one breath at a time. Recovery is not a straight line. Pause. Keep coming back for you. You are not alone. Practice your cha-cha. One, two, three. One, two, three, as in the steps. LOL. When I think I can't, I remember all I need to do is practice. Try with what I have today with who I am today. Thanks for letting me share, Kim. Thank you, Kim. Nancy writes, 
I've been listening to your podcast since April 2020, and it has been a lifesaver in a time of tremendous uncertainty and has led me to Al-Anon. My addict entered rehab for the fifth time in October through the grace of the court system that is allowing him to do so. I'm sure he doesn't see this as a gift from God, but I do, because it has led us to the Caron Center, which has required us as parents to participate in family therapy, which I'm so grateful for. All this has led me to the 12 Steps. Step number two asks us to give ourselves over to God or our higher power and trust that it will be all right. Since I'm not a churchgoer, it has taken me time to accept this step and to be able to see what that means to me. But through this recovery process, I believe that I have finally identified what that higher power is and how I can access it. I had an aha moment that totally shifted my thinking and the way I looked at everything. I now see God, or my higher power, if you will, as our ability to feel and grow to be able to feel anger and then forgiveness, to be able to feel pain and then be able to find solace, to be sad and be able to experience happiness, to give up control when all I want to do is control, to be hopeless and then discover hope, to be vulnerable and broken and then be able to acknowledge our weaknesses and mistakes and be able to ask for help. That, to me, is the God in all of us. I'm grateful to be able to look at all this distress through this lens at this time when I need it most. Thank you for your service. It has led me to acceptance of my son's addiction and hopeful to have the ability to have some peace as we struggle through this as a family. Thank you, thank you, Nancy, for that share. Ute writes, read the episode Stay or Go, which was a long time ago, and I don't remember the number off the top of my head. I just listened to the episode on Stay or Go, and I decided to share my story with you. I had decided 30 years ago to stay, and now to go. My name is Uta, and I am living in Ireland. 30 years ago, I started going to Al-Anon when my husband got sober in an addiction treatment center. For that, I am very grateful. Our two boys were very small at the time, and because I was told by a counselor to go and attend Al-Anon, and being the good girl, I went. It was quite different to what I thought it would be. I expected to learn how to keep him sober, but I found that I could only change myself. The program was life-changing for me. I was a foreigner to this country, and all of a sudden I had people who shared so honestly what went on in their lives. They talked openly about what I tried to hide from everyone. I cried my way through my first few meetings, overwhelmed with emotions. I realized I wasn't alone anymore with this disease, and I made some lifelong friends. My husband and myself each worked our programs, and life was pretty good for a long time, with some ups and downs, of course. About 20 years later, he slowly relapsed into addiction, this time painkillers and later heroin and some alcohol as well. I thought, okay, one therapy will fix it. He has done it before. And I went on my merry-go-round with his addiction again, doubting what I knew deep down. Was it my fault? Maybe he isn't using, am I imagining things? Drugs on him hadn't the same visible effect that the alcohol had years earlier, and his lies were so convincing, and I wanted to believe them. He was functioning well on drugs for long periods, and he timed his using well. It was driving me mad. I lasted eight years in the battle with addiction, and he did three therapies. I asked him to leave the house to live somewhere else a few times because I couldn't live with the addiction anymore. After each treatment, I took him back, thinking, he surely will be fine now. I worked my program and managed to enjoy much of my life, but it became clearer to me that I wasn't willing to live with active addiction anymore. 
Nothing changed, and I waited for the right time, the certain knowledge that ending the marriage was the right way to go. By coincidence, I came across a poem several times in a short while, and that spoke so much to me that I believe it was given to me by my higher power. It read, Two birds, when tied together, might have four wings, but they are not able to fly. And I wanted to fly again. But I was also fearful that I wouldn't survive without him, although I have been the responsible one and kept our business going for years. I have a lot of knowledge and experience with the program, and that helped me rely on myself and my higher power again, so I asked him to leave when I had the evidence of another relapse. Now, with more distance to him and his addiction, I can see glimpses of myself again. I now can see what I like in my life, how capable I am, what I enjoy, and who I want to spend time with, and that makes me very grateful. I find myself dancing in the kitchen to old songs at times and feeling free like a teenager again. Going on 56, there is a lot of joy out there. I'm still going to Al-Anon every week and to other family groups, and it is helping me to find serenity and peace a day at a time. I believe now that it is okay to have made that decision and serenity and peace a day at a time. I don't have to be a martyr or a fixer, and I don't have to fear what other people think of me for leaving him. They don't know what I know about me. Sometimes the pain of seeing him so deep in addiction, spending all his pension on drugs, not having enough to feed himself, is huge. But I can talk about my pain with my Al-Anon friends, and I ask my higher power for help, and those sad times do pass. I'm feeling my way through them, and by accepting my feelings, I move through it quicker than trying to ignore those feelings. There are days with a lot of anger towards my husband. I sometimes need to get that out physically by beating the something out of a punch bag, and then I realize again that he is suffering from a disease. Most days I can make the decision to stop my negative thinking by reading Elnon or other relevant literature, or writing down what is in my head and handing it over to my higher power. I find the slogans especially helpful. Sometimes I write down a slogan like, Easy does it, onto a piece of paper and then put it in my pocket. Just by touching it during the day makes it re- makes me remember to go easy. I can handle lots of things that way. I've been through the traumatic experience of my husband's suicide attempt last year, where I really felt a power greater than myself carried me through and whispered the next right thing to do to me. And I have learned to give without conditions attached and to stop giving when it gets too much from my mental well-being. But most important are meetings to me. This year that has been mainly Zoom meetings, not as good as one person to person, but hey, take what you like and leave the rest. And then I stumbled onto the Recovery Show podcast, and that has made such a difference to my serenity in the last few months. It is nearly as powerful as a meeting. I love it. Thank you so much, Spencer, and everyone who contributes and co-hosts. I work on my own a lot, a farm here in the wild west of Ireland. So having that voice in my ear that talks recovery from across the Atlantic is just amazing. It's sometimes eye-opening to listen to different voices and words, and sometimes it is soothing and reassuring. The program puts the focus back on me. When I feel guilty for not looking after my addicted husband, I can remember how deep downhill I go with him when I try to control the disease. I've had breakdowns where I couldn't stop crying for days, couldn't function and look after my animals, not to mention myself. I had to give back the responsibility for his life and for his decision to stay in addiction to my husband and his higher power. I will never understand how, after therapy and several months of sobriety, he could start using again. I have to live one day at a time, because when my thinking goes down the road, he is dying, he is starving, he's going to be homeless, I can make myself sick with worry, only to see him a day later somewhere along the road alive and smiling, 
and my life is unbearable and unhappy with those negative thoughts. So I'm trying to live one day at a time and be grateful for my sons, my family and friends, and all the small things that are good in my life. I have started to share a gratitude list every day with a friend in a 12-step group. It's fantastic. I can go back to any of the 12 steps when I need to and take my inventory and not somebody else's. Working the program is sometimes hard work, but I can do what I can today and leave the rest because easy does it. Thank you all for sharing your wisdom at the recovery show. I will never be alone if I stay with recovery. Uta. Again, thank you for sharing all of your experience, strength, and hope there. Um, And thank you for your kind words. Paige wrote, Hey, Spencer, I've wanted to write this email for a very long time. I am not sure why it has taken me so long. I guess just life and wanting it to be perfect. Instead, I'm going to get it out to you because you need to know my gratitude for you in the podcast. I started listening to your podcast in August of 2019. I'm not sure of the exact date. I listened obsessively for a few days, and then I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, August 14th, 2019. Since that time, I've gone to anywhere from three to seven meetings per week. I've done quite a lot of service initially with just helping to set up and clean up afterwards. I became the treasurer pretty quickly of my home group. Then, when the pandemic hit, I set up a Zoom account and had at least three meetings utilize it as a way to give back. Most recently, I've been chairing a meeting almost every Monday. I'm mainly just telling you this because I think of all the service has helped to push me forward. If it were not for your podcast, I would never have made it to an Al-Anon meeting, still believing that I am crazy, divorced right now and probably regretting it. I know this now because no matter who I am married to or what they are doing, I show up and I am the problem and the solution to my own happiness. Al-Anon has taught me that I have choices, which is so empowering. My loved one has become mostly sober but is a dry drunk. I do not focus on it because I have learned to keep the focus on myself. I have enough in my own hula hoop to keep me busy for years. Not only am I an Al-Anon, but my higher power has also steered me to ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, starting back in May, and I'm finally getting to the root of my behaviors and actions. I attend ACA meetings every day, and I'm also in a step study for that group. Anyway, I attribute all of my progress to my higher power leading me to your podcast and lighting that spark that has set me on fire for my recovery. I'm so happy to be out of the complete insanity that I was experiencing when I found your podcast and Elanon. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. With much love, Paige. Colleen writes, In episode 342, titled Co-Parenting with an Alcoholic, one of your listeners asked for experiences of dealing with a cycle of sobriety and binging. This was my cycle in my experience with dealing with my alcoholic. I remember hearing in one of your episodes that you felt uniquely worse than everyone else. I so often feel like this, and I think it is a symptom of having been affected by this disease, particularly by binging. When I was a child, I felt like I was constantly on a roller coaster, feeling great when my dad was sober, really like everything was right in the world, feeling at home with him, and feeling totally myself with him. When he was drinking, it was totally the opposite. His whole face, demeanor, personality, and attitude warped into something unbearable and recognizable and just plain awful. I felt like I had been let down over and over again, and I had been abandoned over and over again, and I was not good enough to remain sober for over and over again. I would know that Dad had been on a binge within a couple of minutes, and he wouldn't even have to be in the house. When he was sober, he would always be on time and reliable. 
when he was drinking in those couple of minutes, knowing that he wasn't going to turn up on time, we would know that the next few weeks or months would be painful and he would be absent physically or spiritually. The only way that I could handle this experience was to come to Al-Anon. I found meanings when I was only 21. I was in a serious pit of depression and I had nowhere else to turn, and the only way to get myself healthy was to keep going to meetings. In the first year of recovery, I set boundaries with both of my parents, and I didn't always answer the phone when they called, because I knew that past experience told me conversations didn't always go well if I wasn't in a good place. In the past, I would have the unspoken boundary with my dad that I wouldn't answer the phone after 5 p.m. in case he had been drinking. I changed this to I wouldn't answer the phone if I didn't feel strong enough to accept the possibility he might be drunk by, say, 11 a.m. With my mom, if we had been having a tense conversation previously, or if I knew that something was going on for her I couldn't handle, I wouldn't answer the phone. I didn't live with either of my parents at this point, so I could also set boundaries about when I saw them face to face. I lived a few hours away by train from both of them, and over the course of my early recovery, I gradually visited them more and more. I used to love going to stay with my dad. We would sit watching films at night and go looking around bookshops in the day. He would cook for me, and I would listen to him talk, which I think has been a huge learning point for me, listen and learn. My parents lived in the same town, so when I could stay with my dad, I would also see my mom, which was a huge sign of my recovery as well. After the past 10 years or so, for whatever reason, my dad's drinking has significantly decreased. He is not in any form of recovery, but I am so grateful that I get to see more of the real him. He exhibits some of his drunk traits when he is sober as well, which I have had to grow to accept. I think part of this is that he feels guilty that my mom died before him as she was 15 years younger. For the past year or so, I don't think he has drunk at all. However, he is seriously ill, which is plain to see as soon as you see him. I spoke to my sponsor about this, and I said how it really hit me when I saw him recently. This is a disease, unquestionably. Even though he hasn't had a drink for a long time, it has affected him emotionally, spiritually, physically, and mentally. My sponsor said to me something that she has heard in the rooms, is that this disease is between the ears, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. Because of the coronavirus, I hadn't seen him since February 2020. I saw him on Monday, the 21st of December. I drove over an hour to see him, and I only stayed for five minutes. Our current restrictions mean that we can't mix households in my area, so I went over alone to give presents on his doorstep because we won't be able to spend Boxing Day with my daughter, husband, and dad. However, as soon as I arrived, I knew we could never have done that anyway. My dad is in his mid-70s, he is about five foot six, and now he cannot weigh any more than about six or seven stone. Okay, math, Spencer. Six stone, six times 14 is about 84 pounds. Seven stones would be almost 100 pounds. That's, yep, that's kind of underweight. All right, back to the letter. It was strange because it was an awful moment to realize that my worst fears have come true. He no longer takes care of the lovely home I used to visit him in. He is not able to anymore, but he refuses any form of help. But with the help of Al-Anon and your recovery podcast, I'm sharing about it, and I feel a little less scared, more settled than I would have done otherwise. The priceless gift of serenity. On my way over to see him and on my way back home, I listen to your podcast, Detachment with Love, and Being Ready. I love that in Detachment with Love, I heard the phrase, a self-restoration project, as I feel like that is what is going on for me at the moment as I work the steps for a second time with my sponsor. In the past, I would have ranted at him about getting help, or I would plaster a smile on my face. This time, 
When he asked me what was wrong a day or two after I had seen him, I sent him a message based on a reading I had done. I said, if we love someone, we let them be exactly as they are. I have to live with his decision to not get help, but I asked him to give me time to process this, and that I couldn't pretend everything was normal. He responded with a very simple sentence that he understood. I'm really glad that I spoke up lovingly and got a loving response back. What a wonderful man he is to not have any recovery and yet to understand mine. I've heard of the ripple effects of Al-Anon, and this is a perfect example. I have been getting to more daytime meetings over the Christmas period online, and I am so grateful for all of our online meetings since March, which have kept me sane. Thank you again for all of your listeners and for all of the work that you do. I also have a suggestion for a topic. I heard a brilliant phrase in your podcast that you did with Julie on choosing love over fear one day at a time. She talked about her untreated Al-Anon mother. I mentioned in one of my recent emails to you, I also had an untreated Al-Anon mother. I'm not sure if you've ever done a similar topic, but I think this would be a very relevant topic for a lot of people from what I have heard in my own meetings. My sponsor always talks about the ism of alcoholism and how it complicates relationships with the non-alcoholics as well who are affected by other people's drinking. I'm not sure what you would call the topic of the episode, but perhaps it could address how our relationships with other members of our family get so complicated. My relationships with the non-alcoholic side of my family, who have alcoholism in their past, grandparents and great-grandparents, but are not practicing alcoholics, have pretty much reached a point that I am safer and happier without having them in my life. The relationships are toxic, and I am not prepared to accept that anymore. In comparison with the side of my family where there is active alcoholism and addiction, I find it much easier to get along and am in regular contact with them. I think for me, it might be where the generations in the past have had alcoholism issues, but current generations don't. There's a lot of denial, and in my family at least, lots of overbearing personalities who feel the need for control. This is much harder to cope with for me than the behaviors of the alcoholics in my family. I'm very aware that these are some of my attitudes of the past as well. I thought it might be interesting to explore with people who listen to your show. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you, Colleen, for all that and for the idea, which I I agree, I'm not sure exactly what I would call it. Yeah. Living with untreated Alanonism. I don't know. Interesting idea. If you're listening and you'd like to share on that, again, email or voicemail to feedback at therecovery.show. Marcy sent a note. Hey, Spencer, I heard someone say in a meeting this morning that she was working the traditions with her sponsor. I have been in Al-Anon almost a year and in another fellowship for seven and a half years and have never heard someone say they were working the traditions. I'm very curious about this and was wondering if maybe you had information on working the traditions. What does that look like? How does it work? Thanks for any help and guidance you can provide, Marcy. Well, Marcy, I guess I would say that working the traditions is very much like working the steps. That is, for me, working the steps was taking actions that they specified. And there aren't so many actions in the traditions, I'll give you that. But more importantly, understanding how each step worked in my life, how it appeared in my life, what maybe it asked me to change in my life, even if it wasn't an action step. And and I can do the same with the traditions. I have heard it said that the steps help me to live with myself. The traditions help me to live with other people. So it's a little more indirect, perhaps, but it's still all about me, my attitudes, and my actions. There's two books that I have used to to help me 
understand the traditions and how they work in my life. One is the book Paths to Recovery, which has a chapter for each tradition, as well as the steps and the concepts of service, with a set of questions at the end of the chapter to help me understand what that tradition means for me, how it might work for me. The other book is called Reaching for Personal Freedom. It's a workbook, which again, has short readings, more about how the tradition could apply in my personal life rather than in the Al-Anon groups. And again, some questions to help me explore that. So that's what it would mean to me. Very similar to Working the Steps. Nancy says, Spencer, thank you for your program. It means so much these pandemic days. I came to Al-Anon three years ago and have learned so much. The recovery show has been very helpful in many ways. One area that has been challenging for me is grief, sorrow, and self-pity. I find myself fearing that I'm falling into my well-known pit of self-pity. When is grieving crossing over the forever forbidden territory of self-pity? I feel very confused, even accused when reading Al-Anon literature. I guess I've never really learned the difference between mourning, grieving, and self-pity. Is this possibly a topic for the recovery show? I feel shame rising as I write, so I'll send this without much more consideration. Once again, thank you, Nancy. Again, wonderful topic ideas, grief and self-pity, and how those balance. Reach out if you feel a yearning to share, to co-host on that topic, those ideas. Let me know. Feedback at therecovery.show. Bjarni writes, Hi, Spencer. My name is Bjarni. I'm from Iceland, so no worries if my name is difficult to say. I'm trying, Bjarni, and maybe I'm getting it right and maybe I'm not. I wanted to ask a question. I was in Al-Anon for four years, all in, and I found happiness there. Then I thought, oh, I'm done. It took like two to three years, but I crashed again. I came back last summer, and I will never leave again. I've found again moments of happiness and contentment. My question is, my biggest struggle is that I find a lot of the time a feeling of, I'm not enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm not achieving enough. I have a girlfriend and a four-year-old son, and I have two startup companies. It has meant that we live pretty much broke for three years, and I've had to borrow a lot of money from my dad. He's happy to help. The companies hold a lot of promise, and a lot of people are impressed. But I do get days, even weeks, when I have very little to do, basically because I'm waiting for things to happen. But it really bothers me and puts me in a bad headspace. I liked your quote on, A man asks God for a thing, and God says, you need patience. The man replies, patience, great, how long will that take? I think it's a lot, and I don't feel I can just sit back and wait. I haven't earned it. I mean, I'm broke. Getting an extra job is an option, but if the companies then launch, I won't have time for it, and I feel a little bit like I'm getting the job for the wrong reason since I would leave as soon as my companies would launch, and I feel guilty about it. They could launch in three weeks. It could be three months. Since starting Al-Anon, I don't get the same guilty feeling or start beating myself down as much, but I want to get completely away from it. I do get the comparison game a lot. I'm 40 and I'm broke and I don't even own my own house. I hope you have some words of wisdom for me. Thank you so much for the show. It has helped a lot. Kind regards, Bjarni. I will say that I have those same feelings. I'm not good enough. I'm not enough. I haven't done enough. Even though by objective measures, my life is fairly successful. As I mentioned, last Saturday, we had a memorial for my father, and my brother shared that he had been jealous of my father because my father had managed 
to combine the three things he loved into a career, which was photography, travel, and my mother. After my father retired from his salaried job at the age of 55, they spent the next 15 years traveling, making movies about their travels, and showing those movies. My brother is a writer and a poet. That is what he loves. He has never made a living at it. He's always had to have another job. He did not express directly not feeling good enough, but he did express that jealousy that he couldn't make a career out of what he loved doing. But he chose to keep doing it. And I feel like that's where you are. You have a thing that you really want to do. And at the moment, it's not supporting you. And you feel like maybe it's not the right thing. This is what I'm hearing. I don't know if that's really what you're feeling. But what I take from my brother's story is that it was more important for him to do the thing he loved, even though it wasn't supporting him. I don't know if that helps or not, Bjarni. That's what I've got right now. Michael wrote, I recently learned about the podcast from someone on a Zoom meeting. I've only attended a handful of meetings, but over a span of five years. Although I do think I need Al-Anon, the God stuff and explicit mention of alcohol doesn't resonate with me. My mom does drink too much, but the dynamics of this family disease is more of the problem. I don't care much about her drinking or sobriety. Instead, it's more about the family tension, emotional outbursts, and occasional trauma history that comes up. If anyone identifies with that, it would be helpful to know if I'm in the right place or if there's a better 12-step program for me. I've also heard about CODA and gone to a couple, but mostly have tried Al-Anon. Also, can anyone share information about atheist meetings, please? Thanks in advance. Kind regards. Michael. I guess I, I don't have explicit recommendations for you, Michael, but have you considered Adult Children of Alcoholics, which states explicitly that it is for adult children of alcoholics or dysfunctional families? And it sounds like that might be something that could help you. I don't know, not having been there myself. And I'm afraid I don't have any context for atheist meetings, but maybe somebody listening does and can let us know. Diana left us a voicemail. Hello, Spencer. It's Diana from the West Coast. Hope you're well. I wanted to share a read. Attachment. A person's ability to form helpful attachments with others begins in early childhood. People whose parents or caregivers were unstable or abusive may develop abnormal patterns of attachment. This can cause them to become standoffish, distrusting, anxious, obsessive, controlling, or fearful in their relationships. Emotional hunger. Hunger is a powerful emotion. It is a desperate, dependent, and emotionally volatile feeling that can drive people to do desperate things. Its origins are in separateness. Disconnection in relationships creates a void and an ache for love because we are all made to need love. How was attachment modeled for you? How was intimacy modeled for you? When people have been rejected or treated poorly, any form of attention gets confused with feelings of love. In other words, we attach to people based upon our void and our needs. 
Emotional hunger has roots in unhealthy attachment. Love and fear become intertwined. We become anxious, possessive, controlling. There is a fear that love will be retracted. Love hunger is like food hunger in that it drives our motives. The solution, secure attachment, true connection. Attachment can go wrong in two ways. Parents can have a need to fulfill themselves through their children and thus become too involved. Parents are not whole as individuals, as separate from their children, and this creates dependent, insecure, and helpless adults. The children, in turn, never get the opportunity to form into individuals as separate from their parents. The other extreme is equally as damaging. If love is withheld and retracted every time a person does something the other doesn't like, that creates a person who is afraid of criticism, a people-pleaser. People-pleasers are driven by fear and a need for secure attachment. It's like likes on a Facebook. Every time a person gets a like, it makes them feel validated and their sense of worth increases. The problem with getting validation outside yourself is it erodes at the integrity and value you already possess. We must challenge the emptiness by filling it with healthy relationships, self-acceptance, meaningful attachment, healthy boundaries. Spend time with yourself and get to know your abilities talents and skills and don't give people around you the power to determine your worth or value begin to ask yourself why am i reaching toward them and what am i hoping to obtain from them and address the underneath if we begin to investigate our motives we begin to truly become acquainted with ourselves so we can start filling the voids with the love of an inner voice or with god just a few final thoughts on that. This is obviously where I'm at in my life right now. I shared my testimony about a year ago about growing up with addiction and trauma. I'm being challenged right now to reconnect. As part of my trauma response, I would disconnect and disassociate. And I would do this because the pain was too great. So people could never reach me. I was very distant. It became hard to connect. I would shut off my emotions. And what I learned is that when people go through physical, emotional, or sexual trauma or abuse, it's not uncommon to disconnect your body from your mind. It's referred to as disassociation. So you find yourself going to another place and it's as if this is not happening because your mind is left. It's like you're not really there. So I'm being challenged to merge those two worlds together once again and to have true connection, which is what I believe what God wants for us is true connection. So by being vulnerable, by letting people in, by attaching and I'll just state one more thing that, that I've learned is there is a distancer in the relationship and there's a pursuer in the relationship. And I found I've played both roles actually, but the pursuer is anxiously chasing and wanting and craving for this love. And the distancer is just got the stop sign, like holding the hand out. No, don't come any further. You're not allowed here. No. And these are all trauma responses. And I think we are familiar with these patterns and, we just have to begin and I'm doing it myself and it's not easy to break down those molds or those patterns. It's like the clay is good, but the mold was bad. If that makes sense. Anyway, Spencer, God bless you. I appreciate what you do. Truly. This show helps me so much and um, take care everybody. Bye. Thank you, Diana. Danella wrote about episode 345, slow recovery. Thank you so much for this episode. I'm an ACOA, but I'd like to listen to this podcast that my sponsor recommended. I'm currently working on my step four, and I needed to hear this. It has taken me six months to really get in the flow of working it consistently and get clear about what I'm doing in this step. 
It will probably take me a year or more to finish working it. Thanks for mentioning how long you've been working your step. Now I don't feel alone and can see that others have had the patience to keep working at it, even when it feels so slow. Raquel says, I wanted to reach out to let you know how important the content was on this podcast. It resonated with me on multiple levels. It was refreshing to hear your guest that spoke on the podcast had similar life dynamics with respect to being a mom to two daughters, divorced, co-parenting, as healthy as possible, and the younger child was harming themselves. Additionally, the host of the show shared on his adult son and his difficulties, and I could easily apply that information to my oldest daughter. I think Raquel is writing about the episode I did with Roberta, Teenagers, and Self-Harm. The nuggets of truth in sharing your responses to dealing with all of this was extremely helpful and brought about peace in this difficult journey. I am returning to the 12-step arena after a break for a couple of years. Ironically, I have a sugar addiction slash sensitivity and have decided to complete 90 meetings in 90 days and selected this podcast as my meeting of the day. I can easily substitute any reference to alcohol with my sugar and disordered eating. In the past, I primarily attended OA meetings, but also dabbled in some Al-Anon along the way. Again, I can't thank you both enough about deciding to talk about teen self-harm for a podcast topic. I found the content priceless and even found a small amount of humor in the dark moments described since I too have walked through them. An example is waiting in the ER waiting room after my daughter was admitted to the ER for cutting. As noted, it is an uncomfortable waiting area, phones seem to have low batteries, and sitting in your car in the parking lot talking to your ex are not the best way to spend an evening. Even now, as she continues to self-harm through cutting, anything that I can say bounces on almost deaf ears. Social media and the isolation of COVID add a new layer to the difficulty of being a teen during these times, as indicated by the speaker. As a parent, I stay available and present should she decide to come to me in those times. Your show is a reminder that I need to stay sane. Many others are experiencing these problems and to focus on keeping me healthy and, most importantly, to keep coming back. Graciously, Raquel from Wisconsin. Thank you. Thank you for writing, Raquel. Thank you for sharing your experience. And I'm glad that our words touched you in some way. Misty is looking for an online ACA meetings. She wrote that she would prefer one that is relatively small or that splits into breakout rooms with 10 to 15 people in each. Please send recommendations to Spencer at therecovery.show and I will forward them to Misty. Wendy says, good afternoon. I recently listened to episode 243, Recovery with Young Children. Megan is talking about her young children and her experiences with her alcoholic husband. And then, now, I'm finishing up episode 233, Making a Decision. You mentioned the thought of divorce or leaving your wife while she was actively drinking, choosing to leave or stay and live in the chaos. I feel like I can do and live in the chaos all day, but this is what my children see as normal, and that worries me. I really connected with Megan's story more than I would like when she said, I have a three-year-old, a newborn, and a drunk. Wow. That has been my life for the past five years. I stay, I leave, I believe his promises, and I go back. I promise myself I won't, but I do. In listening to your podcast, I have provided myself with some peace and clarity through knowing that I am powerless over my husband and his decisions and actions. I smile, I feel relief, and then I get anxious. Are our children not the ultimate example of being completely powerless? They are little for a moment in time, already nine and five. I can accept that... 
what he is doing is his choice, but I'm having trouble accepting what they are forced to bear witness to and what they have heard. Most recently, I have asked him that we separate, that we allow ourselves and moreover our children peace at nighttime when things are the most chaotic, that we still spend time together and with our children, but allow ourselves to grow and for me to become less anxious and open to trusting him. He has refused this as an option and says that I can leave, but that if and when he ever leaves, it's for good. It feels like a vicious, chaotic, never-ending cycle. On another note, I have really, truly appreciated the recovery show. Know that you and your show reach many. Your podcast was even brought up during my graduate coursework, which has been eye-opening through this journey as well, being in school to become a school counselor. If you have any suggestions for me regarding other episodes that would be worth a listen, knowing a bit about my story, I would greatly appreciate it. If you can offer a bit of advice, it would be appreciated as well. Because of the show, I have reminders for myself on my desk at work, such as, I am not a burden when I ask for help, and powerlessness is not helplessness. Let go of control. Thank you again for your time, Wendy. I did write back to Wendy. I don't remember exactly what I said, but, you know, the decision is hard. The decision has to be personal. I found the most clarity by working the program, by doing the steps, by going to a lot of meetings, by listening to other people's experience. That helped me to get to the point where when I made a decision, I was confident that it was the right one. And putting my faith in the guidance of a power greater than myself, all of that helped. Cheryl says, hi, Spencer. This is Cheryl in Utah. I discovered your show about a month ago. As I don't have a meeting I can attend right now, so listening to your show's topics, readings, and experience, strength, and hope have proven invaluable. I can now get a dose of program every day. Your show has empowered me to improve my serenity dramatically by putting the tools of this amazing program back into my life after a hiatus from my program. I recently listened to episode 298, saying no, colon, no is a complete sentence. I'd like to share a story from early in my program when I first realized I had an option to say no. Like others shared in this episode, before program, I pretty much said yes to any and every request without any forethought about what consequences saying yes would have. I was overcommitted, overworked, and resentful. I was completely overwhelmed, living in the family disease, running around like a chicken with its head cut off, trying desperately to hold it together. I was irritable and unreasonable, to say the least. I exploded when small things happened that had nothing to do with anything. A simple thing, like my daughter asking me a question, would send me into a rage that was very inappropriate. I would feel awful and apologize, saying I was angry about other things that had nothing to do with them, but I know I damaged my relationship with them repeatedly. I felt powerless over my bad behavior. Then my sponsor told me that I had the right to say no. She told me no was a complete sentence. One of the first things I put into practice was saying, I need to think about it and let you know instead of yes. This got me immediate blowback and escalation from the alcoholic in my life at the time. I was able to ignore his outburst that went something like, if you have to think about it, don't bother. So I didn't bother. I was starting to get a clue that I didn't need to let his little guilt trip affect me. I had the right to say no. What a revelation. I realized asking for time to consider a request was not unreasonable. Then one day, my youngest daughter asked me to take her to Walmart. I pulled out my first tool and asked her for time to consider her request. Upon reflection, I decided I had other things already planned, so my answer was no. 
I got the inevitable why. After all, she knew full well I had said yes to everything in the past. I was pretty awkward with my new tools, and just in the early practice stages, my answer to her why went something like this. I'm busy today, and if I take you, I'll resent it. Since I'll resent it, I'll probably get angry later. She paused thoughtfully, then she said, That's okay. I still want you to take me. I don't mind if you get angry later. I definitely saw the humor in this. While I found her response endearing, I did what was right for me. No trip to Walmart that day. I knew that I did not want to do something that I knew would cause a resentment. My sponsor had given me another great tool that I used to evaluate whether to say yes or no. She told me to ask myself whether I could do what was requested for fun and for free. The meaning of this to me was, can I do it because I truly want to? And can I do it without expectation of some payback or other result? The trip to Walmart did not pass that test. I could not do it for fun and for free. Another tool she gave me was equally valuable. She told me if I said yes to something and later realized it would cause me resentment, I had the right to change my mind. Of course, I was then obligated to tell the person I'd said yes to that I had changed my mind. As time went on, I got better at saying no as a complete sentence, and I had to reverse course less and less often. I was raised to believe that once I had said yes, I must honor my yes. Learning I had the option to change my mind was very empowering. These early experiences with putting new tools into practice were awkward at best, but very necessary for me to hone my new skills. The trip to Walmart was a little thing, but I believe my story about my earliest attempts to say no in a way that worked for me was a great beginning. Starting with this baby step, with a pretty safe person, my daughter, not the alcoholic, gave me confidence that I could actually do this. It felt so good to learn I could say no successfully, if a bit awkwardly. I followed a similar pattern as I began to set boundaries. I was very awkward and halting at first. I would literally say something like, I'm going to set a boundary with you. My sponsor said I need to do this. Then I'd set the boundary, and the alcoholic would run right over it. It was kind of humorous, really, but my awareness was growing. His time in my life was limited from that point forward. With repeated practice over time, I got better at implementing these tools, and I began to get more serenity. The wonderful reward was a big motivator for continuing to practice and make progress. Putting new tools into practice was hard, awkward, and kind of fun. Sure, it took a lot of effort, but now I was aware, now I could take action. Thank you, and to everyone who contributes to this wonderful podcast for your service. And thank you, Cheryl, for sharing that, how you started to say no in your life. Thank you. Terry says, hey, Spencer, I'm new to Al-Anon. Went to my first chat room meeting in December 27th. One of the members said I should give your podcast a try. I love it. I haven't been listening in any order. Loved the three A's and how you said no action is sometimes action. My alcoholic is still drinking, so it helped to know it's okay to not make a decision about leaving my spouse. The reason for my email is to ask how to go about getting a sponsor when there's no face-to-face. I live in a small town, and there are no face-to-face meetings. It's not because of COVID, it's because of size. The closest one is an hour away, and it's not feasible for me to go that distance. Has a show been done on this, or how to do the program without a sponsor? Your thoughts or ideas would be great. Yeah, so Terry, a sponsor, I found a sponsor to be really helpful, particularly, well, all throughout the program, because it gives me somebody who's not inside my head, 
that I can bounce my ideas off, that can share their experience with me and help me when I'm struggling with program concepts or when I'm struggling with the alcoholic in my life or other things. So a sponsor can be really helpful. It's possible, I think, to work the program without a sponsor, but it really helps. I wouldn't recommend unless there's no other option. How to find a sponsor. Go to online meetings. Show up early. There might be some time before the meeting where you could say, hey, I'm looking for a sponsor. There might be some time after the meeting where you can say, hey, I'm looking for a sponsor. And some meetings, I know, ask if there are people who are looking for a sponsor or people who want to be sponsors. And that's a, an excellent place to, to find people with experience who can be a sponsor. And these days, with phone and Zoom and everything, it's, yeah, it, the contact and the, the face-to-face definitely helps to, I think, develop a sense of trust and intimacy more quickly. But it can be done over the phone or, or Zoom or something. So don't give up, step out, ask, and I hope that that you will find somebody who fits you and can help you work the program. Thanks. Kelly says, hey, Spencer, I'm a grateful ACA, and I started listening to your show when I first began the program in May 2020. It helped me to begin to come out of denial and to learn about the 12 steps, even if the programs are slightly different. Listening to podcasts is one of my favorite ways to learn, and I would walk for hours just listening without understanding what you meant until things started coming together. Wait, what's step 11? Oh, yeah. Okay. That's an interesting definition of blank. Oh, wow. I do that, too. I never realized that was something other people who have lived with alcoholism struggle with. It was helpful, like the meetings were, because it shared experience and hope. It helped me integrate the tools little by little. Now I can listen in a whole new way and really accept the experience, strength, and hope of your show into my practices of my recovery, especially on hard days. It reminds me I have choices. As an ACA, I'm always looking for new ACA-specific content that will also support Al-Anon's. I've recently been doing a lot of work with Chapter 8, Reparenting, in the ACA Big Red Book. The experience it was giving to me was that it's a helpful chapter to read before embarking on Step 4, and I have found this to be true. Any chance you'd do an episode on this, reparenting the inner child? Kelly. Kelly, yeah, I have a person who will be helping me with an episode, and we have not yet scheduled when we're going to do that. I think this person is in the middle of a big project, and so we're not going to do it until they're done. And also there was the episode with Becky a few weeks ago about inner child work that may also be helpful if you haven't listened to it already. Thanks for writing. Michaela... Right. I'm just beginning my recovery with Al-Anon. Sometimes I feel that I'm behind everyone else, that they have experienced it all and recovered from their problems. But in your podcast, I always hear a welcome for newcomers and tips that are useful, and that helps a lot. Please know that even though you have been doing this for a long while, there are people who are just discovering you anew and need you just as much. Thank you, Michaela. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for writing. Craig writes, my condolences on your father's passing. My father died in December 2014, and your words touched me. I'm still working on the pain caused by my father's battle with alcohol in the last 20 years of his life. Thank you for the idea of seeds planted and the lasting positive impact of those seeds. Those words have helped me. Melody Beatty has written a powerful book on grief and grieving. The title is The Grief Club. As always, thank you for your service. Take care of yourself. Craig in Alberta, Canada. Jason left us a voicemail. 
Hey, my name is Jason, and I just discovered your podcast, and I am hooked. I have a spouse in recovery. She has just returned about 30 days ago from a 30-day rehab stint in Arizona, and I am not new to Al-Anon, but newer and just wanted to let you know that your show is the first episode I listened to about co-parenting with an alcoholic spouse hit home for me in more ways than I was probably comfortable with. I appreciate your openness and honesty. I am the parent of three children, two adult children and an 11-year-old who have been living with an alcoholic mother for almost a decade. And that uh, really helped. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for calling. Angie writes about my share in episode 350. I just listened to episode 350. Thank you so much for that. I loved what you said. And wow, such growth. I've been listening to the podcast since nearly the beginning. I think you started it in December and I started listening in early January. No idea what year that was, but the amount of growth I heard in this share was incredible. Sometimes we don't notice it so much in ourselves, so it can be nice to hear from others. Thank you so much for sharing and for all of your hard work in continuing this podcast. Thank you, Angie. And that would have been December 2012, January 2013. It has been over eight years, which is just pretty amazing. I find it hard to believe sometimes. Desea left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Desea in, in Montreal. And I just want to thank you so much for your share. It was really a gift because you are modeling a healthy example of how to cope with grief and loss. Feeling the feelings, it's not so easy, yet you're doing it and you're feeling gratitude despite your tears. And you're able to see the positive, you're appreciating what your father has left you despite the fact that he is gone. Thank you so much for your wonderful example. And I, I offer you my condolences. I've lost both my parents. I know how hard it is. So thank you so much. Thank you. And also sent an email. This is Desea in snowy Montreal, Quebec. Several times over the months, I've heard you mention your fear around money. You are not alone. Many of us have trauma and shame around this issue. You may already know this. There is a solution, and it is called Debtors Anonymous. This fraternity has given me my life back as I was crippled by fear and shame. Not so much anymore. I'm attaching the 12 signs of compulsive debting. You may or may not recognize any of them in yourself. And thank you to Saya for writing. At this time, I'm doing pretty well financially, but probably could have used that help in the past. So... I'm going to post the 12 signs of compulsive debting in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 353 if you who are listening are interested in reading them. Christine left a voicemail asking about a step study group. And I responded, Christine, I'm a member of a step study group that formed almost three years ago. We just finished step 12 a couple of weeks ago. But this group was not an open group. Once we formed, we closed it so we could develop the deep trust we needed to have for our journey together. The way we formed was that someone announced in a meeting that they would like to form such a group. 
we gathered together several people who were willing to make a commitment to meeting regularly, and then we did. And that is how all of the groups that I've been a member of over the years have formed. Somebody said, I'd like to start a step study group. I'd like to start an AWOL group. Who's interested? And that always worked. And we always found co-travelers for the journey, something like that. Des wrote about episode 256, which was titled, Tom, His Sister Needed Al-Anon. Thank you, Tom. It has taken me 30 years to finally see clearly my contribution to the chaos. Your story gives me clarity and causes me to flash back to so many relations similar to you and your sister. I read so many codependency books, but used what I learned to help others. I went to CODA meetings, and while comparing myself to them, I could not relate. I just thought, these people need to get a grip. The lenses I used all day were, how can I fix this person or situation? I saw myself as a responsible stand-in for God, who had obviously gone to sleep on his or her watch. It has taken me years of sitting on a meditation cushion to get it. Great show. Thank you both. Thanks for writing, Des. Jeff writes, Just listen to the latest episode, and I feel so much better. Great topic. I meditated and did a dialogue with my inner child. Then, right after, checked your site for the latest episode, and it was on that topic. Coincidence? Maybe not. Thanks again. Thanks for writing, Jeff. Gina says, Hello, everyone, with The Recovery Show. Thanks, Spencer and Becky, for the inner child episode. I first learned about my inner child with a reparenting workshop from an ACA Zoom conference last year. There is a great recording of the workshop you can download online for a couple of bucks. I highly recommend it. I'm often driving when I listen to podcasts, but I suggest you listen to this one in a place that you can sit, close your eyes, and allow space for your feelings during the hand exercise. I think it's within the first 10 minutes. It was profound for me and has shifted how I approach recovery and Al-Anon step work. And she sends the link, which will be in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 353. She continues, I still feel very new reparenting inner child work. It does not feel comfortable at first, but I've learned that doing it helps me like this quote describes. The quote, reparenting helps us act as adults grounded in the present rather than reacting from our inner child's, teenager's, or critical parent's childhood conditioning. End quote. This is from the Reparenting Handout, which I will also put a link to on the website at therecovery.show slash 353. Gina says, For me, when I'm coming from an inner child place, it's like I'm overreacting or being emotionally drunk. I found reparenting helps me feel my feelings in a healthy way and then respond from an emotionally sober place. It reminds me of when Bill W. wrote about emotional sobriety in the AA book, Drop the Rock. And again, we have a link that will be in the show notes. In essence, I think reparenting is a way I can process my feelings when I am in H-A-L-T or upset. Funnily enough, it's also helped me learn how to listen to other people when they are upset and not to jump in to fix right away. I haven't done inner child work connected to play or curiosity. It has primarily been a tool for me to navigate my feelings when I'm angry or upset, so I'm calm enough to do whatever responsible, well-adjusted adult task I need to do. But I would be interested to hear what others do for this fun, playful side of it. Thank you for your service on this podcast, Gina. Pat sent a voicemail share. Hey, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast. I'm calling about somebody who was asking about what does it mean to work the program 
probably most of us who read the Daily Readers read the ODAT on page 45. That is a really good conference-approved literature that talks about enabling. For me, the bottom line is making a consistent effort and remaining open. And as long as I am doing that, my consistent effort of reading literature, of going to meetings, of having a sponsor, of sponsoring others, of being of service, and then being really as open as I can to my messages from my higher power and to seeing life differently through a different lens have been quintessential. I think that's the basics of the program. It's just making that effort. And then as you move through things and you find yourself, because you're working the effort program, because you're having an awareness on a regular basis and this injection of program, you come to find yourself using your program tools when you need them. Taking that pause, when you look back on something, man, I should have done this differently or could have done it differently, even that's working the program because you're saying, how do I want to do it differently next time? And usually that different next time is using a program tool for me. So keeping in the front of my mind any rough situation, what is my part in it? And then that helps me both put things in perspective and know what my next right step is, whether it's making amends or whether it's saying, gosh, I really don't think I have any part in this. This is somebody else's problem and I don't need to own it. And it can go both ways. And then sponsoring when the opportunity arises, I just never thought it would be sponsoring again because my work schedule is so wonky. And yet, magically, in the middle of COVID, it appeared a person who needed a sponsor, wanted a sponsor desperately, and whose schedule matches mine amazingly. And there it was, stepping up to the plate when the opportunity was offered. At any rate, those are my thoughts on what it means to work the program. And I think the simplest is simply come to the meetings. If you do nothing else, come to the meetings. Thank you, Pat. Colleen, not sure it's the same Colleen as earlier or not. Colleen writes, I hope that you're well and that your program is helping you with the events with your father. I was so sorry to hear your news. And I think your service is so wonderful as you continue to do these episodes. What an amazing gift we have in this program and in your podcast. I want to say, Colleen, that doing that helped me too. It really did. It helped me to process what I was feeling, to understand where I was so that I could be more present. Yeah. Anyway, Colleen continues. When I was listening to your recent episode about service, Esther made a comment that I really connected with. She mentioned the effects of recovery. We often hear about the effects of this disease, but I've never heard the phrase the effects of recovery before. It has really made me reflect as I have found over the past couple of months, my recovery has really changed the way I feel internally. I have heard that this disease is physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental, but I have been reflecting that the effects of recovery are also physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental as I work my program and it changes my internal climate. I thought this might be an interesting topic for a future podcast. Thank you very much, yours in fellowship, Colleen. Thanks, Colleen. Yeah, interesting topic idea, and maybe we can do something with it. 
Holly writes, Dear Spencer, I wanted to write a general thank you to you and all your contributors for this excellent podcast that has become a positive part of my life and a frequently called upon part of my recovery toolbox. I also wanted to make a comment about episode 337, Activism and Recovery, which I loved and found fascinating. To me, this episode is a perfect example of the niche that your podcast fills between an actual proper Al-Anon meeting and the real world separated from those in recovery. There are, as we know, certain topics that are not supposed to be discussed in Al-Anon meetings because they are outside issues. I completely support those boundaries because I understand that it is an essential tradition to keep the Al-Anon program strong and undiluted. I'm an activist for particular causes, and I strive to practice the Al-Anon principles in all those affairs. However, there are not really any people in my local meetings who are activists like I am, and so while I do reason things out with my sponsor and other Al-Anon friends, I was so excited by that episode to hear what other activists think about this topic. I also listened with interest to episode 341 with feedback to that episode and wanted to offer this thought to the mix. For me, what I learn in Al-Anon about living life makes me more useful to the world, and if I can try to bring the principles of the program into the wider community by modeling them myself to the best of my ability and by influencing the direction of how my activist groups work as well as what they might be trying to achieve, then I actually feel an obligation to do that. I see your podcast as being like the chat members have after the meeting or on the phone in between meetings, where members can talk in more detail and more freely about the specifics of the things going on, but are still trying to consciously integrate the principles of the program. Finally, I wanted to say that I'm living with a teenager and I'm often scanning your episodes to find topics that might help me get through this time with as much stability and dignity and peace as possible. It's funny, but not ha-ha funny, that it's such a stereotype that this is a challenging phase of life. But when I'm actually in it, I can still be taken by surprise by how quickly it can bring me to my knees. In any case, I'd love your recommendations for good episodes to listen to. Keep up the great work. Love to you and everyone listening today from Holly. And I think I wrote back to Holly. What I said is, go to the search page. Go to the bottom of the page where there's a list of tags and click on parent. And there's episodes there about people who are parents dealing with alcoholic or addict children. Also, the the one with uh, Roberta about her child, and that's an extreme example of the issues that one can have with teens. But they're, they're definitely there. Rockland writes, Hi, Spencer, and thank you so much for episode 352 on the inner child. I listened to it twice in a row to really let it sink in. There are several things I want to share, so let's see if I can somehow wind them together. I started listening to the recovery show around New Year's 2019. I was still pretty new in Al-Anon, and your podcast became a regular touchstone in my journey. I'm grateful for your influence. In particular, your open sharing about the emotional challenges of watching your parents age and slip into dementia has touched me and helped me as I have watched my parents age and experience poor health. I ended up in Al-Anon in the despair of watching my dad go downhill with alcoholism and my mom retreat further into depression. Last August, my dad passed away, his body wasted, and his mind so taken over from the alcohol he never managed to put down. So I send my condolences for the loss of your father, too, and the grief you will experience. Despite years of knowing it was going to happen, I was far from ready, and my grief keeps coming in waves. That leads me to this episode on the inner child. Over the winter, several hard things came at me at once, on the heels of losing my dad. 
something brought up in an Al-Anon meeting tipped me over the edge and I met my inner child. She couldn't stop crying. I started to erupt with anger and sadness like a volcano that just wouldn't stop. Thankfully, I found Adult Children of Alcoholics online meetings and my experience started making sense. I'm 51, a working solo parent, very involved in community volunteering, and on top of all that, I've spent much of my adult life in an ever-increasing role of caretaking my parents in their dysfunction. In addition to my dad's alcoholism, my mom has always suffered from depression and poor health, and for the last several years barely leaves her bedroom. She chooses isolation and says it is me and my kids that make her happy. The final year of my dad's life was brutal. Despite my desperate attempt to have boundaries, my parents were barely functioning. I was making sure their bills were paid, they had meals, and that they were getting to medical appointments. After more hyperfunctioning in the wake of my dad's death, my inner child had finally had enough, and I ended up screaming at my mom that I just wanted to be the kid for once. Slowly, with lots of online meetings, I'm starting to listen to that little voice inside me to discover my own buried needs. It feels like a new level of recovery. Lastly, I want to acknowledge a share by Sheila in that episode. I appreciated her sharing her experience, strength, and hope around the loss of her sister. She brought up a topic that I have also wanted to suggest when the alcoholic slash addict dies without ever finding recovery. So often I listen in meetings to people whose loved ones did find recovery and hear less about those who continue down the path that ends up killing them. I would love an episode about grief for the ones who never found recovery. Thanks so much for your podcast, Rockland. Thank you. Thank you, Rockland, for your words. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.